So as I studied the, the scriptures this week, I was moved by the fact that it's possible for someone to believe in God and yet not be a child of God. Do you hear that? That's scary. It's possible for someone to believe in God and yet not be a child of God. It's even possible for someone to profess to know Jesus and yet not be someone who is saved. I mean, how is that? And I'm sure you probably know somebody who would say, I know somebody just like that. I know somebody who professes to know God or believe in God or to believe in Jesus, yet I would never know by looking at them. I couldn't tell by the way they live their life. So the question then is, what does it mean to believe in God? What does that mean? Does it simply mean believing that God is real? Is that what it means to believe in God? You know, the Bible says that even the demons believe that, and they tremble. They believe in God. But for someone to say they believe in God, and because they believe in God, they say, well, therefore, I'm a child of God, would be no different. Now, now look at me. It would be no different than me saying, I believe in healthy eating and exercise, therefore that makes me a fitness guru. Not going to work. Just because I believe in it doesn't make me something. Now, there is a part about belief that does matter. But is it only agreeing with the facts? Because as we'll see, just agreeing with the facts doesn't help us at all. But you say, but isn't that what matters? Isn't it based upon belief? Isn't belief the core of our faith? And what exactly does it mean for someone to be a child of God? Well, we're going to answer these questions this morning as we study the Scriptures together. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to be a child of God? How can we discern the difference between the two? We're going to pick up in our study in the book of John, chapter 6. And just to refresh your memories, it's been a week since we've been there. Although you'll see in your bulletin that you see where we're going next week. So I encourage you to study ahead and know where we're going so you get back into it ahead of time. But to refresh your memory, Jesus and his disciples had gone across the sea and they were seeking a time of rest. They had no time to eat. They had no time to do anything. So they went across the sea to get a time of rest, eat something. But when they got there, the crowds who had seen Jesus doing all these miracles followed them. They didn't have a time to rest. And Jesus began to teach. And he taught all the way till the evening time. And when evening came, he looked out and had compassion upon them and said, they need to eat. They've been here this whole time. We need to give them something to eat. Anybody remember what the problem was? They're in a desolate place. There is no food nearby. Not only that, but if they did have the money, it would take a whole lot of money because, Scripture says, there were at least 5,000 men that were numbered off, but we know there was women and children as well. So possibly 10, 20,000 people. And this is where Jesus ends up taking, not taking, it sounds like he stole it, he was brought the lunch from this little kid. He had five loaves, two fish. And he prays over, gives it to the disciples, and says, go feed them. And you remember that bread just kept going. Just kept going. And not only did people get just a nibble, they ate until they were satisfied. They ate their fill. And then evening came. It was later. Jesus goes up on the mountaintop to pray. He sends his disciples away and says, get in the boat, go to the other side. You guys remember what happened at sea? Storm picked up. They're out in the middle of this sea and they're trying to get across and they're going nowhere. And all of a sudden they see something out there and they're freaking out. They think it's a ghost. And who was it? 
Jesus. And Jesus comes to them. He calms the winds. He calms the waves. And John tells immediately they were on the shore. That's what we pick up in our text this morning. So if you have your Bibles open, we're picking up in verse 22 this morning. We read in John chapter 6, verse 22, it's now the next day. So to put it back in perspective, that was like 3 a.m. or so that Jesus came to them in the boat. So it's now the fresh day. This is this day that's happening. The next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So the crowd that was following Jesus, they had been fed by him. They knew the disciples got in his boat and Jesus didn't get in the boat. So what are they thinking? He must still be here. He must still be around. There's only one boat, only one boat left. Jesus must still be here. Verse 23, we read, Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Most likely these boats had, had other people on them, passengers that were coming to find Jesus. But also, this would be like our first century Uber. Everybody know what Uber is? You get on your phone, you dial a ride? Well, they didn't have phones, but there were those who would make money by ferrying people across the sea. So now they see the crowd, they come up near the crowd thinking, maybe these people need a ride. So these are the boats that are there. Continue with me, verse 24. When the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum, doing what? Seeking Jesus. I'll stop there for a second. First of all, they knew there was only one boat. They saw the disciples get in the boat. And they know Jesus is not there. He must have gone somewhere. Now, either Jesus runs really fast around the shore to the other side, or something is up. We know that Jesus walked across the sea. But they're getting in there seeking Jesus. And I want you to look at those words, seeking Jesus. It means they're going to look for him. You know what Scripture says? Scripture says that no one seeks for God. I want you to think about that. It's Romans 3:11. No one seeks for God. You go, well, well, Pastor, then we have a problem that Scripture's lying because it says they went seeking Jesus. How can they go seeking Jesus if Romans 3.11 says no one seeks for God? Well, guess what? They weren't seeking for God. That's not who they were going out after. They were going after that, that miracle meal maker. You know, that one that provided them this great amount abundance of food. They weren't seeking for God. And that's important. We're going to talk about that as we get into this study, that they were actually just going for another temporal blessing from him. Continue with me in this text. In verse 25, we see, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They had just seen him the night before. They know he didn't get in the boat. How in the world did you make it over here before us? There's no way he could have made it by foot. He couldn't have walked around the whole shoreline to get there faster than they got over there in the boat. They say, how did you get here? And then Jesus comes very directly at them. Verse 26, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Oh, you see why they're seeking Jesus? They weren't seeking God. This is why they're seeking Jesus. And Jesus tells them right to their face. You're not coming to me because the signs that you saw. I mean, he just fed thousands and thousands of people with five fish and two loaves. And prior to that, he is healing people all over the place. And yet they're coming for a meal. 
the miracle meal maker. This brings us to our first point. If you're taking notes this morning, the first point is short-sighted seeking. Short-sighted seeking. You guys know what it means to be short-sighted? It means you're only thinking about what's right in front of you. Not thinking what's down the road or not thinking further beyond just what's right here. And don't we do that often? Isn't it just immediate stuff that's right in front of us? Like, I need to take care of this now. This is right here without considering what's further down the road. And that's what they're doing. They're coming. Look again with me at verse 26, what Jesus said. He says, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They had just been fed, thousands of them. All this bread, this fish, until they were full. They've seen the miracle before their very own eyes, and yet they're absolutely spiritually blind. It was done right in front of their eyes. And they don't understand the spiritual implications of what Jesus was doing, testifying that he is God. All they saw is, man, that was a great meal. I haven't eaten like that in a long time. You know, it's not like today where you get hungry and you just drive down to Stater Brothers down the street and grab a loaf of bread or whatever you want. This is like a necessity, a, a staple in the diet. They lived on. And all they cared about is Jesus fed them a lot. This is the guy who, who not only gives us food, he gives us a lot. He gives us more than enough. But guess what? For those of us that like to eat, and I enjoy eating, I might get my fill of food, but what happens a few hours later? Hungry again, right? Have you ever eaten so much you say, man, I can't believe how much I ate. I'm busting. Have you ever used it? Thanksgiving's coming up. That's usually a time that people eat so much. Like, oh my gosh, I couldn't eat another bite. And yet, how many hours go by and you go in the fridge for leftovers? You had just testified hours before that I couldn't even look at food again. But what happened? Your body digested, and then you need some more. Well, guess what? The crowd, they were fed the day earlier. They had their fill, but it's now the next day, and guess what? They're hungry again. That's right. It's time to eat. So they think, hey, let's go find Jesus. Let's go get another all-you-can-eat meal. And, you know, we, we think about that and we laugh, but this is as close as they got to a golden crowd. I mean, there, there wasn't any, like, big buffet. They go and eat all they want. This was it. Jesus just did it. I think he was the inventor of Golden Corral or something like that because he gave them more than they needed. They ate until they were satisfied. And they're not used to eating until their heart was content. So now they're working. They're trying to find Jesus. And this is the main reason. This is the guy that's going to provide this amazing meal. They ferried across the sea we see here. And they finally locate Jesus. But their pursuit is terribly short-sighted. Their pursuit is about the food. They were spiritually myopic. They were just looking right here. Their spiritual discernment was clouded. It was greatly clouded with the temporal things of life. I want you to slow down because we're talking about they, the crowd. We're talking about them. You know, they simply wanted more food. They were looking for a temporary blessing. Their short-sightedness caused them to miss the fact of who Jesus really is and all that he provides. Do you get the vase? You guys know where I'm going to lead pretty soon, right? It, finger always comes right back, right? Don't they say when you point at somebody, like you got three fingers pointing back at you or something? Finger's coming back. 
but they missed exactly who he is. This teaching in John chapter 6 begins in the beginning of chapter. By the way, there's a lot of verses in this chapter. By God's grace and Lord willing, we'll be here a few more weeks in this chapter. But this whole teaching is that Jesus can present himself as the bread of life. A handful of verses later in verse 35, Jesus says to the crowd, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And think about this. Think about being in a desolate place where there is no water. My mouth is getting pretty dry right now as well. What happens when there is no water and you haven't drunk anything for a while? What do you desire? Just some water. Just some water. So imagine someone comes up and says, I have some water. Here's a cup of water. There's a well of water. Which one are you going to choose? You're in a desolate place. There is no water anywhere, but now you're being provided. Here's a cup. This will meet your immediate need. But there's a well that you could continue to draw from over and over and over again. It would be foolish for us to just grab the cup and say, I just want the cup. This is exactly what Jesus presented to them. That he is the one who will cause them never to hunger again, never to thirst again. And yet they're like, where's the bread? Show me the bread. Where's it at? That's all I care about. I just want to be satisfied right now. And you know what? We often do the same thing. We fall short of the fullness of him. And we're like, just satisfy this right now. Just this immediate thing right before my eyes. Instead of enjoying the fullness of Christ. This crowd was short-sighted. They didn't see the fullness of him. This crowd, they wanted the fix now. They wanted it here and now. The immediate satisfaction. And I got to say, we said they and they and they, but I'm going me and me and me. And we talked about those who would say they believe in God. And yet perhaps, even though they believe in God, they might not be a child of God. What are they seeking after? What are they desiring? I mean, think about this. What's the excitement with the Mega Millions right now? Oh, look, some of you are nodding off. You just went, what? Mega Millions? What's going on? How much? They said it's going to near like $1.6 billion. My son said a joke yesterday. It was pretty funny. He said, if you win that, would that make you a self-made billionaire? I thought that was funny. But all kidding aside, what's the enticement? What's the enticement about $1.6 billion? I mean, don't people think, man, if I just had that money, the things I could do, I could pay off my debt. I can buy this or I could buy that. I could go here or I can go there. For some of us, I can quit my job. And we can go on and on and on. For some of us, we're like, I could buy a gallon of gas. Because most of us can't afford that anymore either. $1.6 billion. And yet, if we had all the money in the whole world and we have not Christ, that satisfaction is short-lived. It's nearsighted. And some people say, well, I sure would like to try it. Short-sighted. Missing the point. Jesus spoke of this very thing in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. Jesus says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world 
and forfeits his own soul. He says, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Do you think, even remotely think, like by chance, maybe a rich person could stand before God on judgment day and by his riches, God will pardon his sins? Do you think there's even a remote chance of that? No, there's absolutely no way. I just read about Amazon CEO, their founder, Jeff Bezos. Last week, he was the richest man in the world at $161 billion or something. Then the stock market went down by like 800 points or something. He lost like $9.1 billion in a day. Don't feel bad for him. He still had $152 billion or something. Okay? But think about him. Can he stand before the Lord on Judgment Day and say, I have all these riches. Let me give you something. Let me earn your favor with my riches. Do you think the Lord will say, oh yeah, that's what I need. I need some of that money. He's the creator of everything. He's not going to respond like that. Jeff Bezos' money cannot help. But Christ can. Only Christ can help. Some of you are like, man, somebody with that much money, couldn't they do something with that money and use it for good? I mean, imagine he got this idea and like, I'm going to do some good works because he has this thought that maybe before God, I've got to do something to please him. I don't want to be thrown out on judgment day, so I'm going to use this money for good. So what happens if he took all his money and he used it just to serve others? Do you think he could stand before the Lord on judgment day and say, but look, I took my money and I gave it away and I served other people, so surely you'll forgive me of my sins. Think that's going to work? It's not going to work. $150 billion? All gone to philanthropic things that they go and do. By the way, a lot of rich people, you know, do a lot of that stuff. They set up their own foundation. So if I was rich, the Robert Jewett Foundation, that I give money to my own foundation as a tax write-off and go and do philanthropic things. I go invest in education or build a school, a hospital, whatever. And I feel good about myself when the whole point was, the motive was tax write-off. It's either use it or lose it to the government. So they go and do all these things. But can it earn you favor with God? Will it earn Jeff Bezos favor with God? Absolutely not. And he might be deceived to think it will, but it will not. Which leads us to our second point this morning, if you're taking notes. Point number two this morning, works not worth working. That sounds like a lot of waste of time. Works not worth working. Think about how much time people spend trying to do things they think, if only I did this, maybe then God will be pleased. Maybe then God will show me favor. We'll pick up in our text this morning in verse 27, John chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus continues when he speaks to the crowd. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now put it back in context. This crowd, they're hungry. It's the next day they haven't eaten. They've gone to pursue Jesus. They've looked everywhere where he was before. They could not find him. They now get on a boat and go searching for him. They're working to find him. They're putting an effort to find him. They're spending time. Energy, resources to find Jesus. No doubt by now they're also tired on their journey. And they come to Jesus and rather him 
affirming their diligence saying, hey, great job on finding me. Hey, you really worked hard on finding me. This is what he tells them. He points out the fact that their efforts are completely misguided. Well, that's not what they wanted to hear. They wanted to say, hey, I'm going to have compassion on you. You're hungry. Let me just throw you some more food. Let's have another feast. Jesus instead says, no, I'm going to teach you something. First of all, the Father has set his seal on you. Once again, he's claiming his deity, saying he's been authenticated by the Father. He's given him full authority, and now he is here. And they're listening to Jesus' words, and all they're hearing is, they're not hearing it. Do you know what they're interested in? Food. That's it. He's standing before them saying, I am God, and they're going, show me the food. Where's the food at? That's all they cared about. And Jesus points out, look how foolish your efforts are. Look at all that you've gone through to work to get to me, and you've done all this just for bread? This is why you've come is just for bread? He's like, you're missing it. Oh, how you're missing it. I'm here to give you so much more than temporal satisfaction. I'm here to give you eternal satisfaction. They want the cup. He's like, I'm here with the well. You can drink and drink and drink and drink. You can have your fill. Think about this. The same crowd, they've gone through all this work. They've actually located him. And by now, because of their work, they feel entitled. Hey, we found you. You're the miracle meal maker, and we found you. So do what you're supposed to do. Make us another meal. You know what's scary about that? That mentality creeps into our minds sometimes. And sometimes some people think, you know, if I just go to church, then God surely will be obligated to show me favor. You know, surely he'll, he'll have to help me then because I've gone to church. Or, you know, maybe i got to step up my game a little bit and I'll go to Sunday school and I'll go to worship service and then surely God will be obligated to help me out. And they think based upon our works that God is going to have to do some work. Church, those are works that aren't worth working because God doesn't work that way. There's a whole lot of work in there. Do that three times fast. So what's the deal? What it comes down to is motive. What's behind it all? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you seeking what you're seeking? Charles Spurgeon said this. It's real short. He said, the true test of an action or any action lies in its motive. The true test of any action lies in its motive. So when we do what we do, are we trying to earn God's favor? Is that the motive behind it? Because if it is, Jesus says those are works not worth working. It's not about trying to earn his favor. Jesus says look, there are those who think and proclaim that they're Christian who are not Christian. We read that in Matthew chapter 7. Write down your notes, but verses 21 through 23, there are going to be those who call him Lord. There will be those who have done all these works in his name, and he's going to say, depart from me, I, I, I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. So you say, well, wait a minute. This is kind of confusing. What, what was wrong? Their motive. Why were they doing what they were doing? Were they trying to earn the favor of God, or were they trying to appear good to others? You see, Christianity is not about an appearance. It's not about appearing to be good. It's not a show. It's not about trying to impress God. Hey, God, did you see that one? Did you see how I showed the gospel with that person? 
hey, God, do you like that one, how I did it? It sounds silly, but there are some people who respond that way. And they puff themselves up. Look, Christianity, shorten the word, it's about Christ. Christ is the focus of Christianity. Christianity is about God who would demonstrate his love to us by sending his son Jesus, that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. That's Christianity. Christianity is about God who would desire to redeem us and save us through his son, Jesus Christ. The focus? On him. The works? What he did. That he has done it all. And salvation, my friends, is a gift. I want you to think about that. What do you have to do for a gift? We're not that far from, I heard someone say, receive it. We're not far from Christmas. Christmas is going to be gifts. If there's a gift with your name on it, what do you do? You say, well, who's it from? Hey, what do I have to do to earn that? Is that what you do? I don't think so. That's not how we respond to a gift. Instead, you have to receive it. A gift must be received. We're going to look at that in point number three. Point number three, if you're taking notes, is receiving the gift. Here's what matters, church. We have a God who would love us so much that he would send his son to die in our place. That his son would rise from the dead three days later. So not only could we be forgiven, but we could be clothed in his righteousness. That God could look on us as though he was looking at Christ. It's an amazing truth. But this must be received. John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. The crowds respond to Jesus. They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. So they ask, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? They're saying, how do we earn God's favor? What do we do to to earn him to look upon us that he would do what we want him to do? In other words, looking at Jesus, what do we have to do to get a season pass at the buffet table? How do we get this pass? How do we come that we get this bread on and on and on? And Jesus' answer was so far from what they had imagined. He responds to them. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in me, God's son. What kind of work is that? That you believe in me? Well, what does it mean to believe? Because we started this morning off, and I told you there are those who say they believe in God, yet still are not children of God. There are those who say they profess to know Christ, and yet are not saved. So Jesus simply said, here's the work. Believe in me. Well, we need to dissect this word believe. In the Greek, this word means to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. To believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. I mean, think about it. If we put ourselves in a, in a life-threatening situation, if you're in a life-threatening situation, you might heed the counsel of somebody else who's able to save you during that situation. If there's somebody that says, I can get you out of this, I can save your life, you might stop and pause and listen. You might hear them because there's a situation that's life-threatening. Let's throw an example at you. Let's imagine you go to the bank. You're in the bank, just a normal day in the bank. And all of a sudden, the bank gets held up. 
You're there. They scream at everybody, hit the ground. You're on the ground. You're shaking. You're scared. They're yelling at the people behind the counter. Everything's going on. It's like a whirlwind going on around you. And then something happens. You hear sirens outside. You think, awesome. The police are here. The robbery is botched. Everything is going to be okay. And you have some hope, although you're still scared. Robbers are still there. Guns are everywhere. And yet, it doesn't end there. Negotiations begin. You hear the robbers talking over the phone with the police. And all of a sudden, they've negotiated to release some of the hostages. Your head's still in the ground. You're still shaking in fear. And one by one, people are being released. You have yet to be called up. You still don't know what's going to happen to you. Until you finally get enough nerve to peek up and look and you realize you're the only one left in the bank with the robbers. Everybody else is released. What are you going to think? Maybe it's hopeful. Maybe I'm next. At that very moment you're thinking hope, they grab you by the arms and they throw you into a chair. And they proceed to wrap you with a vest. And in that vest, if you like watching the movies, it's full of explosives. And you're thinking, this is it. I'm done. They're wrapping me with explosives. And then that dreadful noise starts. Beep, beep, beep. The timer's begun. And you are freaking out. And by the time you realize what has happened, those guys, robbers are gone. They've snuck out. They've got out another way. But you're sitting there, and you've got a vest on. And then you're startled by hearing a bullhorn, and it's an officer outside saying he's here to help, but he cannot get in the building because all the wires are on the doors. And if they come in, you will blow up. And you're thinking, great. And he says, but if you listen to me, I will help you disarm that vest. I will help you to save your life. Church, if you hear that coming in and you're in that situation, you will not say, forget you. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to try, you know, red, green, blue. I'm going to try my own way. You will listen very alert, tentatively listen every detail. You'll be shaking. You'll be nervous. But you're going to know that person is there to help you. That that person has the ability to tell you how to save yourself. But guess what? It's exactly why Christ came. It's exactly why Christ came. That we and ourselves are headed for disaster. We have stored up upon ourselves by our own will the wrath of God that we've pursued sin and what we thought was pleasure, and yet it's storing up an explosive ending, one that will last for all eternity. So God sends his son. And then the son comes to believe in him means to trust him to the extent that our complete trust and reliance is in him, that Jesus is the one that's here to save me. It's not that Jesus is my homeboy. It's not that he's some cool teacher, but he came to save. That I must listen to what he says. Just as I had listened to that officer and I'd obey everything he said, he's here to save me. I'm going to do that with Christ. I'm going to listen and I'm going to obey. John chapter 3, verse 36. We studied this a while back. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Wait a minute. You just have to believe, right? If you believe, it means you trust in him completely, that you listen to him, that he is the authority of all things. 
But there are going to be those who say, well, yeah, I believe, but they're going to do their own thing. Like that officer saying, hey, just follow my orders. You'll be okay. He said, no, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to do it my way. That's not the decision to make. Here, it's Christ. He is the one who was sent. He is the one who died in my place. He is the one I'm to listen to. Look with me again in our text at verse 29. Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Remember, Jesus was sent. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Everybody do me a favor. Everybody raise your hand with me. Guess what? That's us. That's us. He came to seek and save that which was lost. That's us. He is the seeking Savior. He is the one that has come. And He is the one that we're to place our trust in. And for those of us that have done that, we were spiritually blind, but now we can see. We were once lost, but now we are found. Our seeking Savior has come to seek and to save those who were lost. Absolutely, praise God. You guys know very well, Scripture says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. No matter how good you think you might be, that at least I'm not like that person or that person, that before God, we've all sinned against the Holy God. We've all at some point done our own thing, reasoned out that this is best, and haven't obeyed God. And the Bible tells us that the wages of those sins, the wages of that decision to rebel against God, is death. Eternal damnation. We don't like to talk about damnation much. It doesn't bring you warm fuzzies. But it's the reality. If that wasn't the case, Christ would not have to come. If there wasn't the judgment upon us, then Christ would not have to pay the penalty. But because that is the penalty, because that is what is looming over all who have sinned, Christ came to give His self as a ransom for us. And you say, well, what must we do to be saved? What must we do? You know, it's funny. In Scripture, a Philippian jailer once asked the same question to Paul and Silas. In Acts chapter 16, verse 31, here was the answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. There's that word again, belief. Believe to the point that you put your full trust, your full reliance upon him. It's not about my works of Maybe I could just get cleaned up enough and then God will honor me or, or, or uh, allow my sins to be pardoned. It's about Christ. It's about what God has already done. The work that God's done on our behalf. And now we, we simply must receive it. We simply must receive it in faith. It's an offer of salvation to us. Remember I talked about Christmas. Imagine that present being there. Someone brings it to you, it's wrapped up all nice, which don't ever get a present from me because it won't be wrapped nice. But there's some of you that have a great gift of every corner's perfect and the tape is invisible and I don't know how you do it. But imagine it's looking great. It's got the bow on it and they present it to you and you stop and you look at them and say, what must I do to accept this? Really? Have you ever done that when someone tried to give you a gift? Yes, what, what work must I do to receive this? No. You must receive it. You must be overjoyed that they took the time to care about you, to love you, to be thoughtful enough to present you with this gift. And in your joy, you take it and you open it up. 
And imagine you open it up and you see it's exactly what you need. Could you imagine turning to that person and say, hey, how, how do I pay you for this? Is that what that person wants to hear? How do I pay you back for this wonderful gift? That's not what they want to hear. That's not the response. The response isn't, how do I pay you back? It was their work. They did it. They got it for you. It was their demonstration of love to you. All you do is receive it and enjoy it. And church, that's salvation in Jesus Christ. That we receive it and we enjoy it. That it's a gift to us. The Bible says it's a gift. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Church, we don't work for the gift of salvation. We receive the gift of salvation. And we receive it by believing. That we believe God. Listen to the words I just put together. We believe God. You see, there are some who will believe in God, that God exists. But to believe God means you believe His very Word. That you believe who He is and what He said. And you believe that when He says that I loved you so much that I sent my only Son, that if you would only believe in Him, you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. Believe God. That's belief. You take Him at His Word. That He's done this for you because He loves you. You see, we don't have to work off our debt of sin. Not things that we go do to work off our debt of sin. We don't need to work to try to get better or to good, do good deeds so hopefully that our good will outweigh our bad. It's impossible. We don't work. God works. That's how salvation comes apart. That we believe God. And in believing God, we then read in Ephesians that He has created us for good works that we're to walk in those. But those had nothing to do with salvation. Salvation had to be coming to Christ, receiving Christ, believing in Him. That was it. Not based upon trying to impress Him, trying to say, i got to clean myself up a little bit before I can come to Christ. It's about coming to Jesus and coming to Him as God, not coming as a temporary fix, not being myopic that I just need this thing, but He is God. He is the creator of all things. He is the one that will pour out blessings in abundance, grace upon grace. For us, we need to put away our self-centered workings to think that somehow we're going to make up things to God. That somehow I blew it and now I've got to just do something to make it up. Christ has paid it all. Christ's grace comes out to you. And if you're here this morning and you say, wow, this makes sense. And perhaps you've never turned him in a belief like this. Maybe you believe in him. Maybe you say, well, I, I thought I knew Jesus, but my life I've never submitted to him. Now's the time to come to Jesus. You come to him now. You turn to him wholeheartedly. Now's the time. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not once you get things worked out in your life. Now's the time. Right now. Church, come to Jesus. Come to the one who bestows blessing upon blessing. Come to the one who gave his life for you out of a demonstration of love. It is a gift for you. Receive it. Let's pray. Father, you are an amazing God.
Father, you could have rightly looked upon our disobedience and in perfect justice given us what we rightly deserve. But God, out of a demonstration of your love and because of your justice, that wrath had to be placed somewhere. Our wrath that was rightly due to us had to be placed somewhere and you placed it upon your son so that we could go free. Oh, what a gift. Father, we thank you that this gift is something that we don't have to work for. It is a free gift in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray this morning for us as believers who have turned to you, that God, we would be reminded and be overjoyed that we could be completely satisfied in Christ alone, that he is our everything. And for any person here this morning who thinks, man, I thought I knew Christ, but I've never turned wholeheartedly. I've never fully relied and trusted in him. I pray, oh God, that your spirit would draw them to yourself now, that right now they would turn to you to trust in you, that you would be both Lord and Savior of their life. To you be the glory now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.